Greetings, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Thinking in the Midst, a podcast about philosophy and action in education. I'm Derek Gottlieb, here with co-host Kara Furman, and our topic today is reading, particularly early reading. As our guests will mention a little later on, to call them the reading wars might be to unproductively reify a needless antagonism. So let's just call the recent explosion of popular attention and activism around this issue the reading kerfuffles instead. What are the issues involved here, and what are the stakes? When we imagine a successful reader, exactly which skills and behaviors are we imagining? And in focusing on those, what might we be in danger of overlooking? Our guests today have wide-ranging experience and training in both philosophy and in literacy education, and I'll just invite them to introduce themselves. Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Stephanie Burdick Shepherd, and I am an associate professor at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. Thanks. Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Joy Dangora Erickson, and I'm an assistant professor at Endicott College in Beverly, Massachusetts. Awesome. We are so thrilled to have you here. Kara? Yep. So, hi, guys. Um, we are so excited to have you. And what we're going to do is ask you to talk a little bit about early reading and a subject that you both know quite a bit about as teachers and scholars. And if you can talk about how you would say what some of the issues are around early reading, some of the um, things we should be thinking about, why does it matter, and if you've got an anecdote that helps us to understand what some of these issues are or how you came to study this particular topic, um, that would be really helpful. So, Joy, do you want to start us off since Stephanie went first last time? Sure, yeah. So in my previous life, um, before I began working in academia, I was a classroom teacher, an elementary generalist. I taught everything from K to six, and then I was a reading specialist for several years thereafter. And it was actually my time spent um, as a reading specialist that pushed me to get my PhD, to go for my PhD, because what I was seeing um, was this call, important call, um, for fidelity to materials that were backed by evidence and science. Um, but what I was seeing is that it wasn't working for everyone. And what particularly spoke to me um, is that I found that some readers were really turned off, right? Some young readers, so kindergartners, um, that's kind of what started tugging at my heartstrings, were really turned off by some of these really systematic, explicit, important approaches that they needed for sure. Um, but it got me wondering if there were ways we could do that, that were more, um, more humanistic, more in line with their ways of knowing and being in the world, right? And so motivation is what I've kind of focused on for many years now, but through my years now in academia, right? And specifically in thinking about philosophy of education, I take a wider view of what makes children specifically um, interested in and passionate about and dedicated to learning to read and then continuing to read thereafter. Thank you so much, Joy. Sure. And Stephanie? Yes. So when thinking about how to explain how I came to be teaching literacy in higher ed, I feel like the best uh description of it is that I fell into it. Um, I, <laughs> I'm a, a philosopher of, of education, um, 
currently. And when I left my undergraduate studies, I did not know what I was going to do. I was a philosophy major who had written extensively about schools and schooling my entire undergraduate uh, career, uh, but did not see myself as a teacher at all. Um, and I needed a job. So I took a job as a Montessori educator, as an assistant teacher at a private Montessori in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And I was in charge of introducing young children to their first formal experience and exposure to letters and reading. And I had so many questions. And I realized that my questions were philosophical in nature um, because I wanted to find out what we were asking children to do with this knowledge. Uh, why was reading so important? Why did it seem like such a central experience to my life um, that I wanted all the students I worked with to become readers. Um, so I, I found my way to my graduate studies where I stuck with philosophy, uh, but reading was always in the back of my mind. And I used a, a program in my master's uh, degree work called Philosophy for Children, which uses literature to have philosophical conversations with young people. And I still use that today in my courses with my children and my students that I work with uh, here at Lawrence. And uh, along the way, I ended up teaching our foundations of literacy classes that are required for our educators to become certified in the state of Wisconsin. So really, I fell into it um, along the way the entire time. Awesome. Thank you. So reading is in the news a lot these days in general, given the new, uh, like, uh, uh, a revitalization of the, the reading wars from a previous generation, basically. Can you uh, provide a little background on, like, how that issue has reemerged, uh, how it might be different now, like the arguments that are happening from the way uh, it was articulated in a previous generation, and what the stakes of all this are? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit. Um, so first of all, I think I know from previous conversations with Stephanie and Derek and Kara and numerous others that are really invested in this topic um, that the terminology, right, reading wars is really problematic. So I might just start there if for a second Perfect. if that's okay to kind of... Yeah, clear the air. Um, that term has been around for a while, decades, really, right? And... Um, before the National Reading Panel report that came out in 2000, um, and the reason why I mentioned that first is because there are some solid connections between the movement that we're seeing right now, the science of reading, with the National Reading Panel report. Um, but the wars, right, if, if we're going to use that term originally, were kind of grounded in this idea that children either needed to learn the explicit code, right, that they needed to be able to translate the words on the page, to take those graphic symbols and find the pronunciations, right, and blend them and segment them and really work with the code. Um, and then there was another school of thought, there were others, multiple others, but kind of the dominant one was that children could just kind of pick these words up, right, that they basically would look at a word and they would be able to memorize it by sight and then you would kind of continue to accrue that knowledge. And we know that's definitely not true, 
right? We definitely know for, for sure there's mounds of evidence that tells us that kids do need to be explicitly and systematically taught to decode words. I don't think anyone can test that. I, I think what um, has kind of continued to rear its, its head, right, is the amount of time and the ways that we engage children in this practice and also kind of um, how intentional we are, whether we use a scope and sequence that, that is grounded in good thinking and research. So um, today, the way I would describe the science of reading movement, and again, this is what I've gathered from my own research and from, you know, my my dual thinking here, both having one foot in the philosophical world and one foot in the reading science world and some other, um, some, some, how do I say this? Um, I guess other very valid forms of reading research that do not fit under the umbrella of um, reading science the way it's being used today. But I describe it as a movement that really privileges quantitative studies, right? Of reading processes from three fields, developmental psychology, educational psychology, and cognitive neuroscience. Um, and what I think is really interesting too is, is that these are important. No, no one's saying they're not important, but perhaps they have not received the attention that they deserve, or perhaps they are not um, being utilized or employed in schools the way many advocates, parental advocates and others, right, that are familiar with the struggles of children, um, really familiar and deeply invested, they're not being actualized in a way um, that a lot of people feel they should be. And, and I think that there's good reason for that. But I, I definitely don't think um, that we have a war on our hands and certainly not the way things have been polarized in the past. If any, if any kind of similarity, there, there might be people in my experience, tend to kind of seize upon the rhetoric around these things. And it is an emotionally charged issue for many people, for people who've watched their beloved children struggle, right, day after day, week after week, year after year. And also um, for others who have seen their children not get what they need because maybe there is an emphasis on one thing or another, right? So I feel like everyone's hearts are in the right places. They want to do right by children and by readers. Um, but the contemporary movement is a little bit different because it really limits the people who are um, being granted the privilege to talk about these things, um, or I should say, who are being amplified in different um, different situations, different circles, what have you. So you can see where my critique is going a little bit. Um, and I think that's kind of what makes it different. But what the science of reading movement is emphasizing really isn't all that different than what the reading panel did in 2000, right? So we have these, these big five buckets, right? that we have to make sure students are getting an adequate diet of each and that they're using them in tandem and together to make sense of the code and to make meaning. So those include phonological awareness. And what's a little bit different about today's contemporary movement is there's new research and, or I should say more research to that points towards um, the need for explicit and systematic phonemic awareness, right? So that's one component of phonological awareness uh, that's more emphasized, I would say now than it was in the past. Phonics, phonics is the one that can, has been here forever, right? That people continue to kind of have strong feelings about fluency. Fluency is not new either. Um, vocabulary and comprehension. Those are what we would call the big five 
that have been carried over from the good work of the National Reading Panel um, and that continue to, in some ways, not adequately represented or not adequately addressed in all situations, in all contexts, in all schools, in all districts, in all states. Um, so, of course, we have more research that adds depth and credibility to these big five areas and at the risk of oversimplifying it, there's some more. Um, but in a nutshell, for our listeners, I think that that would do you justice. Excellent. Thank you. That's so helpful, Joy. <laughs> Stephanie, you want to add in um, to how you see yeah, the... So Joy here is the expert on the history of the reading wars and things like that. So that's why I'm glad that she jumped in to answer that question and, and give us a, a, an overview. I think what I want to add um, or emphasize are, are two things. Um, one, one group that's being left out of the conversation, and maybe either by choice or because of our field, are philosophers. Um, Right. Like the <laughs> so science is is wonderful. I mean, it's beautiful. I mean, I started out actually wanting to be a scientist. Um, it makes us play, pay really close attention to our world and, and gives us really amazing information about how our world works. Um, so, you know, but I, I do think there's a place for philosophers to really think about um, what we're paying attention to. Um, you know, philosophy for me gives science. Um, so if we're thinking about the science of reading and this, you know, giant, I think you described the three fields really nicely that are, are contributing to this overall picture that we call the science of reading. Um, philosophy gives us the uh, opportunity to reflect and ask how we're going to move forward. Um, philosophy asks questions about justice, about inclusion, about agency of, of the children that we're working with. Um, Philosophy asks questions about uh, community responsibility and the role of parents and the roles of teachers, um, right? And, and these are questions that we're not going to find by taking pictures of kids' brains while they're reading, right? These are questions that we can only answer by uh, coming together and having really deep and difficult conversations about you know, the purpose of schools in our society today and what roles teachers have in curriculum choice. And I mean, many, 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 many questions, right? Joy's smiling at me right now because, you know, we've talked about this a lot. Um, and so I just want to emphasize because I don't think we think of philosophers necessarily as a group, um, but I, I do think this is an important part of this conversation. Um, what do we do with this knowledge? Who's involved in, in, in the truths of this knowledge? Um, and how are we going to, what, who's going to be impacted um, by this knowledge? The other thing that I want to emphasize that Joy said was that the be, framing this as the reading words is absolutely the wrong move. Um, and I don't want to put myself where I'm in a place of antagonistic conversation with anyone. Um, I really think that um, when we call things, uh, you know, I'm, you know, one side against the other side, um, this is when we really do, um, we're playing with people's lives, right? Um, this is why parents get, uh, rightfully so, um, angered when their children are falling f further and further behind for whatever reason. Um, and the rhetoric plays on those emotions and plays on the needs of our families. Um, and I, I think this is just 
wrong-spirited. And it plays into this um, ideology that if I get ahead, somebody else can't get ahead, right? Um, and you know what happens when we put all of our knowledge together in a true spirit, knowing that I think Joy's right. Everyone does have their hearts in the right spot. We all want our kids to be readers. Um, but uh, the word war isn't going to get us there. Thank you so much, both of you, for uh, saying that. That's uh, necessary to move forward productively, it seems like, to lower the temperature around things and to get us out of the frame that you just described of uh, where there's there's a, a task to be done that must be won and specifically an opponent to be defeated that is standing in the way of something like everyone's uh, happiness and well-being. It, it really elevates the stakes when the stakes are really high for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with victory. So in hearing both of you talk, um, a question that I have is, Stephanie, you focused on a lot of different ways that as a philosopher, you might be asking different questions. And I'm certainly responding to this conversation um, in the news as a philosopher thinking about thinking philosophically about what's going on. So an example I've been thinking about is when we talk about fidelity, you know, fidelity to what, fidelity to who, fidelity as a faithfulness to a curriculum seems to be a little bit of a limited understanding of what fidelity might mean. And that is a philosopher kind of asking those questions. What kinds of questions specifically um, are you sort of zooming in on as you're thinking about how do we go forward thinking about reading and how do we go forward thinking about teaching reading, talking to parents about reading? Um, what does being a philosopher help you to ask in this conversation? So I use this phrase with my students in our Foundations of Literacy class. And I use it all the time, and they joke that I probably have it on a T-shirt, but I do not. Um, and I, yet. I say, reader, <laughs> yet. Maybe I should. This will, <laughs> I will get this on a shirt. I, I just say over and over to them, readers are independent meaning makers um, over and over and over again. And those are the three uh, concepts. So the first is readers, and the second is independence, and the third is meaning makers. And we go back to those three things all the time in my class. So I'm asking my students to think about who is reading, right? So who is a reader? A reader is a person. What do we mean when we describe this person? So um, I think that's a really deep philosophical issue um, when we think about, uh, especially in this conversation, right, when we're talking about beginning readers. Right. So I'm asking, who is a beginning reader? Who is a child, really? Um, so that's a central philosophical question for me. Um, then I also I really think about this word independent and individual. Again, this is about concepts of personhood um, and who's doing the reading. But I also think about uh, questions here of agency and choice. Um, right. And I think that goes beyond just the child, but the teacher having agency and choice. And I ask those kinds of questions of my students. Who's choosing the books in your classroom? Who's choosing the curriculum? How are you marking the path out? Um, and then the last is meaning making. Um, and so I think about, in this context, my philosophical question is really about what's the purpose of reading? 
And there are multiple ways that we might answer this question, um, but I think it's uh, a profoundly complicated question to ask. Um, and it's one that we miss a lot when we instrumentalize and make reading a mechanical process, when we don't think about the overall purpose of being one who reads and who experiences reading. And I think this is why I love reading Joy's research, which is so much about um, the need to have joy during reading and the need to be motivated to read and to have an experience while one's reading. Joy, do you want to chime in? That's yeah, a perfect segue, we, right? We have some, well, we have something in, like, we have many things in common, but something that I just can't escape, right, is the purpose, right? And so I pose this same question in my Emergent Lit courses and in multiple courses um, that I teach at Endicott. And what we always come up with is the purpose itself is often unique to the individual, right? And so um, that perplexes some students because read aloud 101, right? Before the read aloud begins, you want to set a purpose for reading. So the teacher is setting that purpose, but often it's coming from a scripted curricula or, or what have you, right? And so when we dig down into those philosophical, excellent philosophical questions that Stephanie poses, and right here I'm just kind of zeroing in on purpose, um, I think this idea of agency and representation and whose purposes count and what are those purposes, it's just so multi-layered and complex that it requires philosophy, right? It absolutely requires philosophy, but all too often it's completely oversimplified. Um, so that's just something that I really wanted to connect with Stephanie's good point there. And, and many read for multiple purposes at all different time points. And so it's, it's so complex. And so I just want to go back to this. So you just were, used the word individual. And um, I, you know, and I, I'm thinking of those early days when I was a Montessori teacher and really not knowing what I was doing, right? I was a first year teacher in the classroom. Like we've all been there, right? And you're just trying things out and people are telling you to do one thing. Um, and when I think back on my first thoughts about teaching reading, I had this idea that all my students were going to, you know, I would, I would do something with all the whole group and then their, their brains were doing the exact same things, right? Um, and, uh, and then, but when I think back and when I reflect on those experiences, I remember coming home daily to my partner and I would say, oh, so-and-so figured out the letter B today, right? Like, and so-and-so started like, like moving his fingers across the letters today. Like I saw it happen, right? And there are all of these individual moments and that's what was happening in my classroom. It was not 25 four-year-olds you know, all doing the same thing in lockstep, right? It was individuals making their own pathways to becoming a reading and finding that purpose. And this is something that I see in the cognitive science literature, right? I see this um, appreciation and awareness of how it takes an individual brain to become a reader. Um, but this isn't translated necessarily into what we're seeing in the rhetoric about then how we teach reading. So this is one of those times Derek, when, when I think, you know, this, this is something I really appreciate from a field that is not mine. Um, 
and I can connect it to my field, which certainly asks questions about who people are and how individuals move through the world. But I don't see this materializing in our overall systems of education. Yeah, and so I think, Stephanie, I, I, I please correct me if I'm making an assumption here, but something that has followed us from, you know, the earlier days in these discussions around, and that came out of the National Reading Panel, and that today I think is, um, again, being heralded as something that we really need to pay attention to and that maybe receives too much credit for solving some of the reading issues or the widespread reading crisis that, that I I fully acknowledge exists is deducing reading down right to these component models which do make assumptions about purpose right and so um, and nothing against component models we need them to learn they're one of the first things I go to and I'm thinking specifically about the reading rope which more detailed than some of the others the simple view of reading and what have you um, but still a component model right that that doesn't necessarily account for all of the purposes that individuals make sense of reading that they are motivated and um, so that's why for me I always come back to motivation because in my interviews with young children which has become my work for years now, right? I I have spoken with enough five-year-olds and six-year-olds to know that they have their own reasons for reading or not reading. And when what's happening in the reading environment, whether that be the classroom or the library or whatever, doesn't align with their goals, they are far less interested and less committed. And I, there, I can't speak for what that's doing in the long term, but I can certainly tell you what they tell me in the short, short term. And that's that this doesn't align with what I want to do, with how I want to learn. Sometimes it's ideas about the materials they want to use or the specific words or phrases or what have you they want to learn to read or write. Or sometimes it's even loftier than that. I've had children tell me that they know what they want to be when they grow up. Grow up. I've written about one particular little girl who um, wants to be a park ranger, right? And so what she's doing, she does not see the connection to what she's doing in her reading intervention program with her learning the fundamentals for being a park ranger. And so I think these purposes, what, what you discuss with your students, um, and I probably should have you come in and, and do that with my students in a more a deeper uh, and more even more ph philosophical way, is drilled down to that individual and the purposes and the facets of their identity that, that um, really kind of impress or, or influence why they want to or don't want to do what they're doing in this specific area of reading and context. I'll tell you what, I'll come in for your uh, who's doing the reading lecture if you come and do the Scarborough Rope for mine. You got it. Yeah. I, I bet you have a better <laughs> description than me. <laughs> we build reading uh, ropes. Everything's about models. So we build I do them too. And right? yeah, I, thread them, yeah. I thread them with embroidery thread. And yeah. my students are like, what am I doing weaving today? And I'm like, yeah, we're weaving in college. See, you got um, it. Yeah, but yeah, right. Like this is, I love the uh, the, the Loris Laguzzi a poem from um, the Reggio Emilia school, um, which is that, a you know, five-year-olds have over a hundred languages, over a hundred languages more, right? Um, and, and we literally we, sever the head from the body. <laughs> yes, and, and so we're looking, you know, and we're adults and, and we're not going to remember all those languages and we're not really good at hearing them all. And so we have to be really careful for sure. Like, I think it's important that I sit here, right? Like, students need phonological sensitivity. They need phonemic awareness, right? Like, like I don't want any of that to go away. 
But I also don't want to miss the fact that a five-year-old has infinite complexity and depthness right here and now in their five-year-old self. Um, and that's who's in front of my students and that's who's in front of me. Um, and uh, I, we just can't lose that. And I, I wouldn't, I have to jump in, right? Like I'm the queen of jumping in. So if you haven't learned that about me, <laughs> I promise to tame myself. But additionally, something that I, that I really, that I really find problematic about the component models too. And again, I rely on them. I couldn't do my job without them. So in no way, shape or form am I saying that we shouldn't be using them. Um, but in thinking about translanguaging, right? In thinking about multilingual learners, um, students that use diverse dialects, um, culturally and linguistically diverse students in general, right? These models, they, they're they not specifically developed with them in mind, right? And I think, um, so another way that component models can reduce the power that we have in the classroom in meeting the individual needs of students is when you think about those models, right, you think about how they connect to the English language and everything's emphasized through the English language, which is, of course, privileged in schools. And I, I'm in the, the public schools enough to know that teachers get nervous, right, when you ask them to bring translanguaging and appreciate translanguaging and appreciate the help their students learn simultaneously multiple languages at once because we know that's what's best, right? Um, but the component models kind of allow us to feel more comfortable in teaching reading in English. And and so for me, that's really disturbing. So the motivation is one part that I worry about. The individual motivation, which of course is influenced by culture. And then the language component, right? The multilingual, um, comp which again, and dialectical component, which is of course influenced by culture. So for me, culture is a huge part that's missing from component models that we would never want to leave out of discussions or considerations at, at any level, um, be it the federal level or, or the school level or what have you. I'm going to pause you guys just for one second, and I want to have you define three things um, because our listeners are coming from different places. So one of them is this rope that you're talking about. Um, two is component models, and three is translanguaging. And if you can just give us a, a, a sort of brief sentence to bring us everybody into the same conversation, that would be great. So whoever wants to take that on. Joy, it's you. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, so um, perhaps, I mean, I really do feel like in this sense of visuals worth more when we're talking about Scarborough, Scarborough's reading rope. Um, but what, what Scarborough, I'll tell you what the rope does well, right? It, it does include more components. And when we talk about component models, we mean the different um, specific skills or components that are used together, right, simultaneously to produce proficient reading, to lead to meaning making. So Scarborough kind of takes the simple view of reading, um, which involves language comprehension, right, and also um, being able to crack the code. I'll, I'll just kind of put those. So you need to be able to crack the code, right? You need to be able to get the words off the page. And meaning you need phonics. To be able to Yes, yes. And you need to be able to understand um, what you've read once you get those words off the page, right? So that's the really simplified, simple view of reading. Those two things together are required for proficient reading. What Scarborough's Rope does is then takes those two buckets and breaks them down into discrete skills. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So it gets even more complicated, which is a good thing, right? Because reading is extremely complex. Um, but that, those are those two. And then when we're talking about translanguaging, we're talking about students using 
everything in their linguistic repertoire to make sense of um, any kind of communication, right? So to express what they're thinking um, and also to receive information and to pull information off the page, right? So translanguaging, children may um, use, they or they should, we should be encouraging them to, right? Make good sense of all of their languaging skills. Um, and so that's something that can really intimidate teachers, especially if they don't speak that language or if they have multiple languages in their classroom. Some simple ways people do that is by bringing in um, bicultural books, right? Books with more than one language, so books that encourage translanguaging. Uh, other ways are kind of supporting children's, children in their agency as experts, helping them or encouraging them to help us, right, understand what's going on. How might I, what is the best choice? What is the best word choice or what makes the most sense here? But combining um, both languages or multiple languages to really make effective meaning for the individual. That's really helpful. Um, and I'm going to just add in a lot of that work comes from Ophelia Garcia, who was at um, CUNY Graduate Center, just to, she has a whole community of people who've been doing work on translanguaging. And I will um, turn it to Derek for the next question. Thank you. This is all, this has all been uh, fantastic. My question has more uh, of a uh, policy applications bent. So one of one of the things that I feel like is going on, and please correct me uh, if I am wrong, in the in the science of reading debate is not only sort of uh, uh, an emotionally charged reaction by people who are very immediately invested in what they're seeing in schools, and particularly like the fact that like kids who are very close to them aren't reading the way that they hope that they're reading, uh, is mapped onto an academic pursuit like a science a particular view of science whose hope is to arrive at like a general theory of how reading works that can then be sort of like legislated into policy and then applied in every classroom sort of simultaneously what i'm hearing in your uh in your responses is that it is important to keep in mind that like no two kids are exactly alike and so like this dream is uh flawed from the get-go and also that there's a way in which this sort of generalizing power of science and this to the generalizing power of policy we might as well say uh is is always imagining a certain kind of person or a certain person period and so like the it seems to me like there might be a danger of shutting out people whose voices and concerns and views of the world matter in in this debate. And maybe some of that is done rhetorically and politically just by the label science of reading. Is that, that's not really a, much of an open-ended question. Do you want my personal <laughs> opinion, Derek? <laughs> I'll put it out there. I'm 100%. not afraid. No. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, let me preface before I go out here on a limb and say that I 100% believe in um, a lot of the good findings that are being, being emphasize, emphasized by the science of reading, right? Like there's no question that phonics helps kids. Absolutely no question. There's no question that kids need strong phonemic awareness skills, like none of that, right? I, I think if policy embraces those kinds of things, I'm, I'm on board with that. Um, and if they weren't happening before in certain schools, they should be happening. I, I can't speak to that and I certainly wouldn't want to accuse anyone, um, but I do think it's important that those things happen in schools. That stated, um, I do, I do, 
it makes me nervous the way that this term was coined and then kind of put into practice as um, an ex almost like an exclusive club, right? Like in order to contribute to what we know about reading, um, in order to be called science, right, or deemed science, in whatever sense that means. I don't know if it's a pure sense or, or what have you. It definitely feels a little suspect to me. Um, the studies need to come out of these particular fields and they need to be quantitative, right? And I think um, that's deeply unsettling for many reasons because we know that this kind of research, excellent solid research, as Dan Willingham, right, cognitive scientist, guru of the reading mind and what have you has said many, many times, doesn't always translate neatly into practice because people are individuals. Stephanie's good point, right? People are individuals and there are so many factors that can influence how our reading develops that to say that we have, you know, this one tried and true method is misleading. Um, and I think Tim Shanahan wrote about that this past weekend on his blog, right? He, he recently put out, Tim Shanahan is a leading reading scholar, very well respected, um, worked on the, on the national reading panel and what have you. Um, and first he kind of put out, I'm sure people are, or people may be familiar with Emily Hanford's, um, podcast, right? Sold a story. That's, I know that's in some school districts it's required listening to right now. So he put out one blog that was in support of her podcast to make clear kind of the point that I, I made at the beginning, that there are certain elements that we have to have. No question, right? We have to have them. Um, but to lose the individual or to promise that adopting these methods with more fidelity or with more regularity will solve all of our reading problems um, is it's just irresponsible, right? So I think that's kind of where I fall out on that. And so it makes me very nervous that people are being excluded because it did feel like a push to say this is what counts and this is what doesn't count. And we know just from the conversation that we're having here today, right, that we need all the collective deep thinking minds we can gather to tackle this kind of a crisis, excluding people, groups of people, um, whether it be from the research themselves, right? Like, so we know from the National Reading Panel report, there were groups of, of um, populations, if you will, like multilingual students that were not considered. And that, I don't think in any way, shape or form was malicious. It was just the way the research was designed, right? Um, but nevertheless, they were excluded. and. Stephanie made this excellent point at the beginning of the podcast that philosophers are, are excluded as well. And I would also say practitioners are excluded, right? And so when we're trying to translate research into practice, I can't think of a more important place to study it than on the ground with the people who do it every day. So that to me is one more place where it makes me it really concerns me that we would limit the scope of what we consider when we're trying to solve the national reading crisis. And can I just add, not only practitioners, but Joy, this is your research, but children's <laughs> voices, right? So right. Um, like, I think this is another place in which we have to think about, um, okay, so we have these pieces of knowledge that we know and, and that we're pursuing. Um, but I do feel like children's voices are a piece of this, how they get implemented. I think, um, you know, to go back to the conversation about culture, but what this looks like in communities, um, right? Like this is where we see our children. They, they live in communities um, that are also rich. Um, and and I, I think we have to ask those, those policy questions have to be asked within that 
context as well, right? So um, the other thing I'm thinking about in terms of policy, um, there, and, and Joy and I, we might disagree here a little bit, actually, um, and which I think would be fascinating and we could talk about this. Part of the policy has been this push to diagnose and to assess. Um, and I actually have, uh, I, I, I do think that we're missing um, some of the quantitative piece here with children. So as much as we have this quantitative data coming out of the science of reading, um, I think we're missing children's voices, but I also think that we are missing children um, and uh, we are not screening them. Um, maybe we need to be screening them differently. Uh, I don't necessarily wanna go to testing all the time, every single child, every single day. Um, but I do think that there is a piece where we're not seeing the whole picture of what children um, are doing when they're reading in our schools. Um, and I think this is part of why parents are a part of this um, uh, of this movement right now, is that they want to know what's happening with their children. Um, and that's why this rhetoric uh, does seem to hit something real. I do not disagree with screeners. I'm all <laughs> for screeners. I think that's really, but what I would add, right, is a motivational screener. <laughs> I want to see the basic skills, and I also want to know what kids think about um, the instruction that they're getting and whether or not it aligns with their own personal goals. And I just want to add here, like, in terms of thinking about how we think about science, science is supposed to correct itself, right? Like, it's this ongoing process, right? It's not the final picture, just like philosophy, right? Like, we might find plateaus. We might find spaces where we're kind of resting um, in a particular truth, uh, but we're always asking ourselves, is that is that enough? Is that is that the whole picture, as it were? Um, and I'm really uh, I love Marianne Wolf's work, um, and I teach the Proust and the in the Squid in my class. Um, but I also love her new work, uh, which is how our brains are being changed by our digital lives. Um, and so you know, like we're having all these conversations, like this is how we read, and this is how we increase in attention. But at the same time, adults are struggling to read as much as they were before. Adults are struggling to focus. Um, in the way that they remember focusing on favorite novels in the past, right? And so I think we have to recognize that the world marches on um, and that our job as philosophers, as science, as educators, uh, as parents is to continually to ask, okay, how's the world changing and what's my response to this? Um, That's fascinating. That's all excellent stuff. I, I need to say that for myself who... I am not a reading specialist, and I am just a philosopher. Uh, my primary interest in that particular question has to do, there's a lot of overlap between what we're seeing now specifically in reading and earlier sort of like race to the top era uh, sort of teacher policies. I think a lot about like when, when I hear like component models, I think a lot about like Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion and like we can take this very complex culturally determined skill and freeze it at a certain point and say that this is what it is and then break it down into its component skills and then give those skills and what seems to be now i'm just talking about lamov's book and not trying to weigh in on any of these debates where i'm out of my depth but like what seems to me dangerous about the general approach is that uh you create the conditions for doing something pretty well 
But by sort of reifying the idea that this is a solid thing with a solid endpoint that is divisible into X number of whatever things, and then if you've got them all, you sort of like uh, put a cap on the possibility for innovation, for extension into the future, for projection into other contexts, for the inclusion of other people. And so that that's something that I hear there. There's also a like... Uh, I just want to say to Stephanie's point, through indexing academic books, which I do, I encounter the weirdest kind of things. There's, there's, uh, there was a collection of on comparative textual media edited by uh, Kate Hales that maybe it came out in like 2013. There was a piece in there by a guy named Timothy A. Johnson on the Roman book roll. Like this is a medial technology, and it got it got all into like what reading meant in like third century AD Rome and like what the practices associated with that were, what the, what the media were like. And it's so important to remember that we're talking about a historically and culturally situated practice. Something that is not necessarily biological universe, biologically universalizable joy. Yeah. I was just going to say like, that's why we think about, or we constantly tell our children, if I was going to have something on my t-shirt, Stephanie, it would say reading is a science and an art. Right. And so the art is the cultural piece. And so a teacher can take all of the excellent evidence out there that we have from science and should, right, should know that and should use that and should start there. But then how you manifest that in the classroom to propel individual learners is an art form that you continue to refine over time as you learn. And that doesn't come from, you know, ed psychology or what have you. Um, it's much more something that you kind of have to make sense of and keep up with in terms of being aware of the socio and political context and the realities of the context. Yeah. And so this is, I, I think I, you said a couple of moments ago, you were talking about discomfort at one point, right? And um, I, again, I agree. I think I want my, my teachers, my novice teachers, my student teachers to know how the brain works, right? This is this is so valuable. And of course I want it in our teacher education preparation programs. Um, but that's not gonna take away the fact that teaching on the ground is sometimes uncomfortable. Um, and I don't mean that I want like our schools to be places of pain, right? But I do think that, that we have to recognize that we are teaching human beings. Um, and that means the unknowable is right in front of us all the time. Right, whether we're working with a five-year-old or a 25-year-old, um, we're not gonna know what happens next, right? It's not mechanical. Um, so I love that phrase, right? It, it is an art. Uh, it's an art that's full of discomfort. It's an art that's full of mistakes. It's an art that needs to embrace failure, um, unpredictability. And this is not something that we like to talk about in public. This is not something that the public wants to hear, um, but I think it's really important. Um, this is how we move forward. That's such a great point. Joy, more. Yeah, I just, uh, to make one more connection, right? We were talking about component models before, perhaps over, even oversimplifying the science aspect, right? Completely leaving out the art, but oversimplifying the science even. And what that makes me nervous about, right, is, um, the potential for kind of reducing instruction to proceduralism, which is a term I, I borrow from Darren Shetty's critiques of P4C, right? But really thinking about this in a limited rational way without thinking about it 
in a more reasonable way. What do we need to consider about the socio and political context and the culture of where we are at? So I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I do believe, Stephanie, there is a path forward that we can take the good resurgence um, and, and new knowledge that we've gained from the science of reading movement, right? And couple that with what we know about art and culture and society and our individual context in children um, to kind of make better decisions for how we implement um, reading instruction and reading programs and do and do screening right the screening we have to catch we have to identify the individual all facets of the individual reader and the screening is a, a big important part of that it's really great the it strikes me that like one of the most unhelpful uh, rhetorical aspects of characterizing uh, what we're seeing as the reading wars is that it suggests that something like either the science or the art of reading must win when really these are complementary pieces that must both be present. Kara, yeah. Well, I think you guys have um, taken us to a really valuable place. And let's close with um, one thing or um, two very small things that you could do in class tomorrow that teachers could do, that practitioners could do based on what you're saying about this merging of the art and the science together. So either one of you, only, what only, would you do? Only two, Kara? <laughs> well, we only have like six minutes. So most important thing, I'm showing up in my class tomorrow. What should I be thinking about? Oh, Stephanie's oh. got to go first. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, right. Like you're choosing like, two things. Okay. I'll choose one thing that I definitely do do. I, I do have a course called um, Why, Re Why Read Children's Books. Um, and the whole point of the class, I mean, I have other outcomes, but truly the, my outcome that I really want students is to um, either remember or, or experience for the first time the joy that is reading. Um, so I want them to find something joyful in a children's book. Um, and I read aloud children's books in almost every single one of my classes. If it's not literature, I read books when uh, in my ethics um, of education class. I read books in my philosophy of childhood class. Um, and um, I read children's books in even our first year studies class, and even though it's not on the curriculum. Um, because I think, uh, I think students and adults don't read children's books enough. Even those of us who may have children, um, we don't read them for ourselves. So that's one thing. Maybe I'll let Joy go next and I'll think of my second thing. Yeah, yeah, so I think um, I was, uh, for a moment I was gonna ask you to clarify, Kara, whether you mean K to 12 or pre-K to grade two or whether you meant um, teacher educators, but I think I have one that covers both. Um, so I, I would tell I would tell listeners that conferring with readers, starting to build out a plan for how you might sit down and confer with readers is key, right? And when, when you're looking at that plan, thinking about the science and the art, like perhaps you even have two columns, how am I going to drill down to what this student knows about the component skills, about the science of reading, but how am I also going to drill 
drill down about this person as an individual, right? What makes them tick? What, what are their reasons? Where do they love spending time reading? There's always a place, right? Um, I had a wise, a wise professor at the University of New Hampshire, Andrew Coppins, tell me that they always enjoy reading somewhere, Joy. You just have to figure out where it is. And so for me, that's something I tell my students, figure out where they do enjoy, even if it's like, is it in the lap of a loved one where they're listening, right? Is it a book on tape that they're listening to before bed? But there's always some place where they do feel like they belong and where they enjoy. So conferring with reading or conferring with readers on both of those two pieces, the science and the art. That's really wonderful. So, yeah, my second one is, I, I mean, this is a huge part of um, the children's literature conversation. So I guess I'm going to go back to that um, field right now. But I think uh, paying attention to the text that your students are surrounded by and who's in those texts, who's being portrayed positively, negatively in those texts, who's not in those texts at all. Um, you know, I, I, I think looking at the diversity or the lack of diversity in the text surrounding our young people is really key. And so that's what I would encourage educators to do is look in their school libraries, in their classroom libraries, in their home libraries, and think about what text might not be there that should be. Awesome. Thank you so much, especially Stephanie. The, the, the I mean, not to denigrate you, your, your contributions, Joy. I was at your... Your passionate sort of uh, defense of reading aloud uh, with kids, like reading children's literature uh, to them, is really going to help me when my two-year-old wants to hear Barnyard Dance for like the one billionth time later on today. So I appreciate that. I'm taking a much, a much more rosy. And just, just take that to the next level. <laughs> like your next college course, open it up with Barnyard Dance, and you would be surprised where you end up, Derek. I'm sorry, students of mine who may be listening, get ready. Okay, well, I'm going to close this with that image of um, Derek reading Barnyard Dance to his next um, philosophy and ethics class and um, say thank you so much to both of you for an incredible wealth of knowledge and a really beautiful um, integration between the art and the science of teaching reading. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. And that's our show. Enormous thanks to Joy and Stephanie for taking the time to talk about their work and their thinking, especially as their interests seem to be so much on everyone's mind these days. As always, you can find future episodes on the Philosophy of Education Society's website, but also, and probably more easily, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you tend to listen. If you not only subscribe, but also leave us a rating and a review, it helps to boost our visibility for others as well. If you've got feedback or thoughts for us, you can contact Kara and I directly together at thinkinginthemidst at gmail.com. On Kara's behalf, too, this is Thinking in the Midst. I'm Derek Gottlieb, and we will see you next time.